Greetings, Chapo listeners. It is Amber Lee Frost here, and I have with me a special guest, Paul Prescott, who is running for state senate in Pennsylvania, District 8, correct? That's right. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's a place. I've heard of that. Okay, so first question. We're going to go at it hard-hitting. When will Jacobin Magazine acknowledge that they are um, coordinating a cabal of Caribbean contributors? Because you've got, see, your dad's from Barbados. We've got Bosker. We've got Ramike. Like, what's going on there? It's very suspicious. Will you be happy until you have, you know, a, a, a member from each island nation? Yeah, we are actually, this is an attempt to create the new West Indies Federation. Um, some of you might know there was an attempt in the 60s that failed, but uh, we are reviving it. And we all know that West Indians have the best politics uh, of any group. It is actually really fun learning about like West Indian politics, just because like, I mean, it's obviously different. They have a completely different relationship to capital, but also it's so small and it's so like localized. I remember like telling Bosker about like this Calypso song that was like the the singer was saying that if like I think if the councilman that he had just voted for didn't lower the price of milk he was going to beat him with a piece of mango wood right and that is such local politics that <laughs> that is I am going to assault you with a piece of regionally specific lumber and it's a song that people like could dance to I mean they probably did which which rules. Uh, yeah, I mean, and actually, you know, take Barbados, for example, very tiny island. It was, and I used to live there in the summer. My dad was also a public school teacher. So when he had off, we, we would live there. And you would see the prime minister in the, the grocery store. Be like, hey, what's up? And like, they're just, like <laughs> putting fruit in a bag. Not a huge place. Yeah, if I wanted to, maybe I could have brought a piece of mango fruit and tried to beat him with it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an option. That's what you get with, uh, with local It's like politics. the equivalent of like when the guy threw the shoe at George W. Bush. Yeah. Um, could have done that or could have just beaten him with a mango. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about your union endorsements. <laughs> Going straight to it. So you've got, you've got a, and you just got a new one. You just got the uh, Postal Workers Local 89. You have Temple Association of University Professionals. You got um, IBT. That's, uh, that's Teamsters for Trains, basically, right? Right. Uh, you got Teamsters 623, that's package carriers, uh, AFT, Local 2026. Oh, and AFL-CIO, DC 33, that's private primary education. Right, yeah, ask me, DC 33. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm really excited about that one. That is the, the second largest union in the city, and that's like blue-collar um, municipal workers. So sanitation workers, water department, streets department school crossing guards, all types of city workers. Um, I can't keep all your union endorsements straight. <laughs> How do you get all of these union endorsements? What is it about Paul Prescott that they love? How, do you, how does one woo the Teamsters? Because I know how I did it, but I have a feeling you did it differently. Well, I mean, honestly, a lot of this was just long-standing, deep relationships that I've built for years. You know, And you know, my background is in the labor movement. Um, before <laughs> running for office, I was a public school teacher, very... Um, active in my own union, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers. We are engaging in their endorsement process as well at the moment. Um, and, you know, my main side of political activity for many years was in labor and not just in my own union. And honestly, in my DSA chapter, my focus was in our labor committee. And we built a lot of really great relationships with local unions. And, you know, all of that kind of has very organically translated into this campaign. 
um, you know, it's something that it can't happen overnight. Like I always say, these unions, it didn't, I didn't just show up one day and make a great dazzling speech. That's just not how it works. I don't think my public speaking is that good. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, these are people that they've known what I'm about. They know this is a serious campaign. They know, like, if anything, I have to force myself not to talk about labor too much on the campaign and remember that there are other issues as well. Um, so yeah, it's been really great to see this come together early. And as you know, and I'm sure many listeners know, it's actually pretty rare because unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't just come down to who has the better labor platform and labor will endorse. You know, there's a lot of structural reasons why unions will often go with an incumbent over a progressive challenger, even if that challenger has better labor politics. There's a lot of complicated reasons why. So this is felt pretty unique in what we're building here. And I think also unique that it includes a lot of blue collar unions as well, um, as opposed to just, you know, more white collar, semi-professional grad students. Right. Yeah. I'll be nice. (laughs) I was trying to be nice, but uh, yeah, you gotta be nice to grad students on this podcast. Uh, Yeah. And, and you have that coveted blue collar um, endorsement from uh, the Philly Democratic Social America. I don't know how you got that one there. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Um, I had to get the six unions first, you know, and they were like, well, not for you. Because as you know, that's a... Uh... Very difficult. Yeah. Um, it does seem like, I think a lot of people go into, especially small races, they're like, we're going to go around and court the union and we're going to say, knock on their doors and say, this is our platform. And uh, unions are like, hey, who are you? Uh, it really does take kind of a long game and a, and a longer lasting relationship than just coming up with like a good, you know, a good brochure about what your policies are. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a problem I see with many, not all, of course, but many progressive candidates. And, you know, it's like they will say, of course, they're pro-union and I'm sure they are, but it's like it kind of comes off maybe as an afterthought, um, not necessarily central. And you can get a sense that it really isn't necessarily central to the worldview and or even how they see the race, because I mean, to be totally honest, why I see these, this union support is so important, not just on principle and not just because, of course, I love unions, but literally our ground game is very dependent on these unions mobilizing their members and, and having a lot of members in the district who can vote. And, you know, obviously, yeah, of course, you know, DSA, they do a lot of great canvassing. That's a big part of it as well. But I actually I really do need these unions in order to win and getting out the vote. Um, and that, you know, that's a big calculation any candidate should be making yeah i mean they're also some of the only working class institutions that exist as decimated as they are that's kind of it so there's constituents and then there's communities and i think people kind of think in terms of like running uh an electoral campaign that they can appeal to communities but communities is kind of a fuzzy word what's your approach to your constituency yeah i mean it's Broadly, it's really not too complicated. I mean, it's like there are issues that we know both just through living uh, over the years, but also through conversations that of what are the pressing issues people are facing. And so my district, the 8th Senate District in Pennsylvania, is it's pretty interesting. It's, it's pretty large geographically. It has a yeah, little. Tell us a little bit about it, because like Pennsylvania is too weird. It's got like the last working class city in America and then the hills have eyes. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it so it's my district encompasses West Philadelphia and portions of Delaware County surrounding suburbs. So even within West Philadelphia, I mean, there is a heavily gentrified part around the University of Pennsylvania, and Southwest Philly is more so working class, um, you know, vast majority black district. And then Delaware County, um, again, it is more so of a working class suburbs vibe, but still different than what you'll find in the city. 
Um, but, you know, like within that district is some of the poorest zip codes in the city and the state, um, public schools that have been devastated, lack mm-hmm. of good jobs. Um, gun violence is just off the charts all over the country, especially in Philadelphia and especially in my <laughs> district. So you mentioned gun violence, which I think a lot of people sort of see as like sort of a right wing boogeyman. But like if you live in a neighborhood with gun violence is actually a very real concern. I remember someone once saying, you know, so like a lefty person once saying, was like, well, you know, more people die of like car accidents every year. And I'm like, yeah, but there is a different kind of psychic terror of someone with a gun coming to intentionally kill someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, I mean, we can't ignore it. And, you know, I know it's, there's the temptation to, to say this is just being played up by the media. They're exaggerating. And I'm sure there's a grain of truth to that. And like, look, Gun violence is nothing new to the city of Philadelphia, of course, but it it really has reached levels that many people have been around a long time have not seen in a very long time. And, you know, and the the kind of arrogance that comes with, uh, you know, maybe disproportionately middle class uh, group. Yeah. Crime is fake. I don't see it anywhere. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, it's it's an extremely, you know, and I, I have begun knocking doors in the district and like it is the number one concern that will come up. And it's extremely visceral. I mean, it's the difference between thinking about like, do I even want my child going to an after school program because now they're gonna have to walk home at this time of night, you know, or do I even want to go to the park if you even have a park in your area Mm -hmm. because of what we're worried about. So it's a very visceral thing people are dealing with in their daily lives. And of course, you know, our answer should not be, yeah, just stick the cops on everyone and, and total tough on crime stuff. But we have to acknowledge that it exists and we have to understand why just like saying something like defund the police is not going to make sense to people. And ironically, especially working class black people who are dealing with these issues, that's not going to make sense as a way to frame the problem. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it seems like that, that zeitgeist kind of went away pretty quickly. A few, a few cities tried it under, um, I think it was just basically to Trojan horse in austerity for all kinds of things. Like we're defunding the police. It's like, yeah, <laughs> It didn't help. And the only thing that happened is that the rich neighborhoods hired private security and uh, doesn't really solve any of the problems, does it? Um, okay, but yeah, the violence more broadly, I mean, it tends to like overwhelm any kind of, no matter where you are. Again, it's not some right-wing boogeyman or like middle class, whatever, but violence and crime, it can kind of overshadow uh, more positive projects. So you're running on, you know, kind of a, a Green New Deal legislation program, too. How do you talk about that when people are, like, concerned about their kids going to a park? Yeah, I mean, I try to frame, I mean, everything under the heading of public investment. And, you know, whenever gun violence is coming up, you know, most people understand when I start talking about, you know, if we had better funded schools or if we had more after school programs that kids could go to or if people could know they could graduate from high school, not to go to college and get a really good paying union job. When I frame that to people, like it really, it resonates. I think people get that. And I think this kind of maybe, I don't know, this sounds a little um, wishy-washy, but I think this, this gun violence we're seeing, I, I see it and a lot, a lot of people agree, is kind of this part of this general story of a total lack of hope in the future and not seeing a future. Um, and you know, I think talking about it in that way and saying, you know, like we need to fund our schools, we need mm-hmm. people need to be secure in housing, they need to be able to have a good union job in the future, something to go to. Um, I think that that makes sense to people. And, and you know, there's a great um, analogy we can use in this area because 
um, in an area called Lower Marion, and it has one of the wealthiest school districts in the state, um, very affluent area. It's very, very close to West Philadelphia. I mean, you could walk to it. It would take like an hour, but it's very, very close. And if you're there, it's like you're in a totally different universe. And, you know, most people are aware of that. And so, you know, you just make the point, like in Lower Marion, they're not dealing with this because, again, their schools are so, you know, funded to, to um, abundance. And there's any after-school program you can imagine they're not dealing with these same issues, but that shows that it's very possible to do this. And you, you can get a glimpse of what life would be like if we did have that kind of public investment. Yeah, there is kind of a benefit to living in a city, no matter how like unequal it is, just in terms of you can point to it's like, hey, well, the money's right there. I'm looking at it. It's, you know, three blocks over. Yeah. And as also, I mean, looking at the University of Pennsylvania, an Ivy League school in my district that and I wrote a Jack article recently on this, has a $20.5 billion endowment. And they are yeah. exempt from property taxes because they're constituted as a nonprofit. Um, and so, you know... Wow, it sounds really lucrative to be a nonprofit. Right. It's great. Um, <laughs> you should, should check it out. Um, so, you know, and this is literally... You, if you A modest tax for, on University of Penn would bring in over $40 million to the school district every single year. Um, so, you know, and that's something we can we can point to in the district that's saying, like, we need to force these elite institutions, whether they're a corporation or a fake nonprofit, I believe, <laughs> like Penn, we need to force them to pay up and, you know, we can hold them responsible for a lot of problems we're seeing. Sure. So in addition to these little loopholes of places like Penn, like uh, Pennsylvania is kind of a, a tax haven, like they've got natural gas too and they don't really pay anything they do not pay taxes yeah even though they apparently leave people with flammable water sometimes and we're literally probably the second or third largest fracking state in the uh country these last two decades um and again Ooh. no taxes i mean is is that that has to be a huge obstacle though right i assume there's a ton of lobbying from natural gas and anyone else who wants to set up shop and not pay taxes i this is Obviously, a question I know the answer to, but how much effect does that have on uh, campaigning? You mean that kind of lobbying influence? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because in my district, you know, my district does not include communities that rely on fracking for jobs. You know what I mean? Mm. So most people in my district, especially voters, are kind of of the same opinion that it's a very basic thing to them that the frackers should be paying taxes. You know, so now that would be a bigger influence like when when I am elected, trying to actually pass legislation to tax them, of course, would be a much more tougher affair. Does it seem like rural communities? I mean, I know, you know, with a lot of my family, they're like, look, coal gave us jobs. We can't do anything that will make them go away. This was the last time we had union work. And, you know, they there is some sort of clinging, even though the industry is basically gone from those communities. There is a, a lot of fear that the only jobs in that area will go away. Is, is there something similar going on in Pennsylvania with natural gas? Yeah. Now, I will say, and, and this is something I've found out more and more through talking to people that are actually more so in those areas, is that they've actually found that a lot of workers um, in Pennsylvania fracking are actually from Texas. Not all of them, <laughs> of course, but there's actually a large portion of people that are not necessarily Pennsylvanians. But um, yeah, I mean, it is a problem. And this is actually why, and there are, I mean, some people in the environmental movement might, you know, really disagree with this, but um, 
I kind of, this kind of just happened organically when someone asked me a question of it, where it's like, in terms of how would we transition away from fracking, I, it can't happen overnight, right? And it's like, obviously, you don't want to parrot industry talking points. But like you said, there are many, many communities that like totally depend on this for their economic livelihood. And I think the most realistic thing we could do is start taxing them heavily and use mm -hmm. that money very specifically for an actual transition program that is real and is heavily funded. And, you know, we need a real actual plan for that. And then I'm actually I'm working with my research team to roll out a very specific plan of like, what exactly would that look like? How would we fund a real transition? Now, that position is technically different than an immediate fracking ban, you know, um, but that's something we have to think very seriously about. Like, I don't I don't think we could just shut it off overnight. Right. We need a plan. Yeah, we need to work through. And, you know, I've been in you would also encounter a ton of resistance from working class people, too, again. like Right. Exactly. You know, and one thing I have been encouraged by, though, is at the state level increasingly in Chicago, they just passed a really great, ambitious climate legislation that was like totally supported by the unions, including the building trades around climate. Um, and, you know, plans for the creation of tons of really great union jobs and clean energy. And part of it, too, was a very well worked out transition plan that unions, even in those sectors that would be transitioned out of, could get behind, where it guaranteed, you know, over years that they'd be taken care of, that when we retraining would actually be real, that they would keep their health insurance for a long time. So those mm -hmm. are the kinds of plans we actually need to be talking about, even if we know we can't pass them next year, I think would send a signal to those unions and those workers that we're actually taking this problem seriously. And we don't think we can just end things overnight. Yeah, I think the building trades and, and the Teamsters in particular, there's a lot of sort of confusion about, you know, those are the right-wing unions, which doesn't really mean anything. It's like when a union's on its back foot or when, when labor more broadly is on the back foot, like they are not able to, they're fighting for the union, not necessarily, you know, programs that would affect everyone. And like, I think with the Trump stuff and the builders, it just seems so obvious to me. It's like, yeah, well, some of the building unions endorsed Trump because he said he'd build things. He's a guy that builds things. That's their job. Like, how is this not obvious to you? You're like, look, you know, it, it, maybe he's not the most brilliant guy in the world. Maybe he's kind of a piece of shit. But I definitely see his name on buildings, which is, you know, it's bottom line stuff. And actually, there's funny, uh, and I did a segment on the Jackman show about this. There's a really great, it's both funny, but also it's like politically, it was very good. A rally Trump did with the um, building trades. Oh, God, I loved that. Folks, I'm a builder. I'm a builder. Yeah, yeah. Just look at the amazing talent assembled here. We have iron workers, insulators. <laughs> Never changes, does it, with the iron workers? Well, let's hear it. Laborers. Painters, yeah. fitters, yeah. plumbers, yeah. operators. Yeah. They're operators, all right, I'll tell you that. But really, you're the backbone of America. With the talent in this room, we can build any city at any time, and we can build it better than anyone. But we're going to do even better than that. Together, we are going to rebuild our nation. 
Yeah, he's he's like mentioning too, like like you know, stunk stone cutting and like you know, marble tile and terrazzo, like like weird fucking building. Like that's the shit that because Donald Trump knows what a terrazzo cutter is. <laughs> yeah, and 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 also what people have to realize is that so many of these building trades unions they are already working in renewable energy, and yeah. for a lot of them, it's a very pragmatic situation of they they don't there's nothing. A, they have nothing against clean energy. I mean, what they want is jobs. And it's like, whether those are... There are immediate concerns. Right. Whether those are fossil fuel jobs or clean energy jobs, they want jobs. And so our job is to present and keep presenting credible plans for actual jobs in clean energy. I mean, I had a very interesting conversation with the head of the sheet metal workers union in the Philadelphia and and surrounding area. Um, And it's a very interesting union because they both work in building retrofits for clean mm-hmm. energy and they work on pipelines and the guy said like look i'm all for transition you know i i take climate change very seriously i'm all for transitioning away but we just need to figure out what are we doing with those jobs you know so-called dirty jobs and mm-hmm. again if there's not a realistic prospect if we're not powerful enough to present a plan of like well here's how we could actually fund the transition in the meantime what else can they do except take the jobs on offer you know what i mean right and the, the whole like idea of timing, too. It's just like, well, you know, in 10 years, we're all going to be underwater. It's like, OK, well, people living pay to check to paycheck in one month without pay, they're metaphorically underwater. So you just have to think of these things in terms of timing. If you have nothing to offer with the with your Green New Deal, it's a bad, bad Green New Deal. And also, deal. you know, having, I mean, respect for these workers and their skills and knowledge. And I mean, Lee Phillips wrote a really fantastic piece. I forget, I forget the name and where it was published, so that's useless, but really great um, piece about this. And I mean, making this really important point that like these are the workers that actually have the knowledge and skills to do the transition we're talking about. And we need to, they need to be part of this from the very beginning of crafting what is this going to look like? Because um, they're going to be the ones actually doing it. And it's there's kind of an arrogance about not thinking you need them or need to do the work of uh, yeah. eyes. Yeah, it's like, I have no idea how to tell we're going to, I couldn't tell you what we're going to do. <laughs> like, Yeah. It's like also the whole like, well, we'll just do, it's like, well, first of all, you're not going to do it personally. You are personally not going to be doing the thing. So it does seem like maybe incorporating um, the input of people who are literally going to be doing the thing is uh, pretty integral. Well, okay, so you mentioned that you're a, a union teacher as well. You're active in your union. Um, so uh, you have a real job. Why do you want to be a state senator? Or rather, <laughs> rather, uh, what can you get done, do you think, as a state senator? Given, I mean, and if you want to seg this into talking about the obstacles in Pennsylvania politics, that would be great. Yeah, for sure. And this whole thing kind of is ironic. And I know this is like the corny thing every candidate is supposed to say, but I, I truly <laughs> didn't really see this coming. And I've always been someone and still am someone that believes, I mean, I think the most important work we can be doing is in the labor movement specifically. And, you know, I think that there is no electoral movement without that kind of base and that, that kind of movement going for you. But, you know, having said that, I've definitely been inspired by, I mean, mainly Bernie Sanders, but also other candidates in the country and at the local level who come with this movement perspective. And, you know, I think Bernie showed us that um, we, we need our movements reflected in the state at some point. And other countries, you know, that have 
labor parties or socialist parties, like it's very common sense. Like, of course, we need a movement, mm-hmm. but of course, we need this in the state. And um, you know, I think we should be having cadre or I hate to use that word, but, you know, uh, people. Yeah, don't use that word, Paul. <laughs> You're running for office, for Christ's sake. You know, we, we need these kinds of people that organically come from these movements to be running. And, and one weakness I saw of many of these new left candidates, even very good ones, is they did not have roots in labor and couldn't they couldn't launch mm-hmm. their campaign from a position of having that kind of labor support. Um, well, well, let's clarify that for like a little bit, because I think there's, you know, this whole debate, particularly within organizations like DSA, and there are all these words that are like organizations, institutions, um, but then you have parties, and then movements, and then unions. To me, there's kind of a you know, like of the approaches, you've got your sort of electorals, your movements, and um, you've got sort of like labor activism. But I don't know. Some people have a quad sort of thing of it. Some people have a triangle. But I guess what, to your mind, is as someone running the relationship between electorals and movements, just for you personally? Yeah, I mean, I so first, I think, I mean, the the electoral campaign should come out of a movement in some sense. And I think that's what we're doing in this campaign in the sense of like, I'm someone that comes out generally out of the labor movement, out of building these kind of uh, progressive labor coalitions um, and seeking to reflect that in the state um, in different ways. And I think a big way is what we were just talking about around crafting real infrastructure deals and, um, you know, green energy transitions with union buy-in is something that a state legislator can, can be a part of. Um, and I think, and this is part of the, my answer to what can I do when getting in office? Um, so, I mean, I look at this as kind of a few different tiers. So one of them is the fact in Pennsylvania, I mean, barring something, uh, you know, unforeseen, if I'm elected, I will, there's probably going to be a Republican majority in the state house and state Senate. Um, and so there's going to be a, a big barrier to a lot of the things that I can do, but this is where I think this idea that, you know, Bernie put forward around this organizer in chief thing is very important in situations like that. Whereas whatever is happening or not happening at the legislative level, if there is a strike in my district or in the area, you know, taking a very different approach to that than a traditional politician would be doing and really seeing my role as like everything in my power, using all the resources at my disposal to tip the scales, you know, in favor of those workers in that struggle and to do my best to organize constituents around that in different ways that haven't been um, done before. And, and that, of course, could be true of whether that's a housing fight or, or something else. And, and I think bringing these coalitions together for the long term, and again, I keep coming back to this around green energy transition, and this is what we've seen in some of these states, because um, not just uh, Illinois, but also New York, um, Maine, Connecticut, they're starting to get this train moving in a very good direction of getting labor truly on board with this stuff. And state legislators have been in the middle of that and been part of convening that coalition together and moving it forward. And I think that kind of stuff, whereas like, even if we don't pass it this year, we have worked out a a genuine plan with the unions that we can get behind, um, that we can keep pushing for in the future. And, you know, really being central on that and putting labor at the forefront in that way. These are all things you can do, even if you can't pass legislation to reflect that yet. You know what I mean? Um, we're laying brick one at a time. Right. And also, I mean, you know, and these looking for certain openings, I mean, the issue of nuclear power, I mean, this is another 
controversial thing in the environmental movement, but I think there could be room in the state where, um, you know, around saving nuclear power plants, you could actually get some bipartisan support. I mean, forcing University of Penn to pay taxes could surprisingly get some bipartisan support. I mean, so. Oh, I think you could get some bipartisan support that. You just go to the, you go to the Republicans and say, these kids with their basket weaving classes and their, <laughs> right. their trigger warnings, they don't even, the, the people that sell this to your children don't even pay taxes. And then, you know. Also, yeah. I mean, and this is, I'm getting very ahead of myself, not even having won this election yet, but thinking yeah. more long term. I mean, I think, what our elected officials in this position also should start doing is, I mean, really testing the theory that we've been having is that you could, you can run a candidate in a so-called red rural working class district with a Bernie style program. If the right mm-hmm. kind of candidate and the right kind of campaign, they can win. And I think as elected officials using our resources to find that candidate and, you know, this could work several ways. I mean, let's say you get some good, uh, you know, infrastructure, structure project done with certain building trades unions, you find a building trades member in a so-called red district and run them on a program of infrastructure, funding public schools, that sort of thing. And this is actually the story of how maybe we can start flipping these districts um, in the way that we want to do it. And, you know, elected officials have a role to play if they choose to use their resources and clout and political capital to do that, or even have the idea to do that. I think it would be possible in the in the medium to long term. Okay, so let's wrap it up with a, a final question. That I think is very important. If elected, and you fail to deliver, what will filthy Delphians beat you with? What will be their mango wood bat? Okay, that's a good you got to think that. about this, man, because they're an angry people. Yeah, I mean, the real answer is probably like any sharp metal object in the vicinity of. Of anyone, but I think <laughs> they're opportunists. Yeah, the uh, the Super Bowl um, cup, the the trophy, Super Bowl trophy. Um, there you go. That'd be a good one. Um, Cheesesteaks. They could like throw them at me. Um, yeah, it wouldn't hurt, but it would be disgusting. You'd be covered in cheese whiz. Especially yeah, if yeah. there was a high volume of them, always. Yeah. I mean, it's just annoying <laughs> after a while. But yeah, those are the, those are the the top ones that come to mind. But yeah, really, For probably sure. the most sharp object in the closest vicinity would be it. I don't want to stoop. I won't stoop to the level of Ben Simmons. I think he'll always be the most hated person. So I'll use him as like the shield. You know, I won't. That guy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think you'll be I think you'll be safe. Um, But thank you so much for joining us and talking to us. And we will post up a link to your fundraiser, Friends of Paul Prescott. And uh, you got a shot. Best of luck. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And why the blasted milk so dear? I want them to remember. We support them in September. They better come good. Because I have a big piece of mango.